Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 9. That's where we are today, Acts chapter 9. The key concept this morning is this. You have a vital role in kingdom work. Jump in and get going. Acts chapter 9. By now you realize that we are talking about what we call the quail base path. And on your uh, bulletin cover today, once again, is, is the illustration that we use to visualize what it will be like when we are accomplishing our mission of winning and building passionate lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. The bases on that base path are not programs, but rather they're outcomes that we want to see in people's lives, and and the programs support those outcomes, all driven, we believe, by the Word of God. So a few weeks ago, we started with first base, win the lost, bring people to know Christ as Savior. Then second base, build the believer. Third base was last week, equip the faithful, and today we talk about mobilizing the disciple. But before we go there, I want to start by sharing with you a scene from my youth. And maybe it's something you can relate to as well. In the town that I grew up in, in New Jersey, we had a community pool. And that community pool was something that, you know, we, we enjoyed. And I grew up in the day and in the age and in the location where my parents thought nothing of saying to me at, you know, summer morning, uh, you can go down to the pool. I'd hop on my bike unsupervised, ride my bike down to the pool, stay there all day. And then the only words I heard from my parents as I left was, be back for Dinner, right, be back for dinner, that's all, be back right by dinner, that's the, the only word they had, so it seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't, but that's the way we, we did it. But it's not the going to the pool that I want to talk about, but it's rather what happened there. Specifically, I want to tell you about what I have come to call the adventure of the high dive. See, in, in our community pool, they, at the deep end, they had three diving boards, One was really low, just like a step up. Then the other one was about four feet or so. And then there was the 12-footer, the high dive. And I remember meeting my friends at at the community pool, and we we would dare each other to jump off the high dive. And I remember the, the day that I did it with my knees knocking, scared, kind of shaking, climbing up that ladder, and then inching out on that diving board all the way out to the point where it was kind of wobbling there with my weight underneath it, and my friends down at the edge of the pool saying, jump, 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 jump. And I jumped. And I lived. I wasn't convinced that that was going to be the case, but, you know, with everybody shouting, I jumped, and, and I lived. And you know what happened? I jumped, and after a while, what was so fearful to me became something exciting. After a while that summer, we were, we were just running to that high dive and jumping in and then getting out of the pool and clambering up the ladder and jumping in again. It had become a joy to us. And I tell you that story because the same is true with serving the Lord. You are part of what God is doing here in our church and in our community. You see people growing in faith and in knowledge, and it's joyful to see people uh, uh, growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order for that to happen and to be a joy, we need people to jump in. Mobilization is jumping in. 
So let's start where we ended up last week. I asked you to envision a few things. For instance, envision what it would look like if in our church all the people with the gift of mercy were acting mercifully to one another. If all the people with the gift of teaching were teaching the Word of God, if all the people with the gift of evangelism were bringing people to the Lord and inviting them to the church, if all of the people with the gift of giving were diligently supporting the work, if all of the people with the gift of musical ability were actually in the choir and on the praise team and singing for the glory of God, Imagine if all the people with the gift of helps were active behind the scenes, making things happen and using their logistical talents to make sure things go smoothly. I believe it would be revolutionary in the life of the church. We need to be mobilized and we need generous, open-hearted mobilizers who open the doors of ministry so more and more of us can jump in and experience that thrill that I'm describing today. And there is a man in the New Testament who epitomizes what it looks like to be a mobilizer, a generous, open-hearted person who opens doors. And his name was Barnabas. He was able, first of all, to be mobilized himself and then to to use his gifts to mobilize others. And I want to pick up the reading in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 26, because we'll see him in action. Here's what it says. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now the him in that passage, as we, we started reading it, you know, is, is Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul. And Saul, by now in his life, has come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's a follower of Jesus. By now he recognizes that he, he is uh, given an assignment to do. He's gifted. He's knowledgeable of the Scriptures. And he understands that he's meant to be a preacher. He's already spent some time sharing the gospel in Damascus, where he's coming directly from. He's already also shared the gospel in Arabia. He wants to be used But when he goes to Jerusalem to be with the other disciples there, he encounters a lack of trust from the believers in Jerusalem. And you can understand why. He used to persecute these very same people. And in that that moment, it illustrates the truth that in order to be a mobilizing church, where we allow people to engage in joyful service, we need to trust one another to serve. Barnabas trusted people. He had a realistic view of humanity. Barnabas knew that all people fail, that people sin. He knew that there are times when we all fall prey to temptation and act selfishly or defensively. But Barnabas did not allow that reality to stop him from his God-given ministry of encouragement and opening doors. He had faith that God's power was able to change people, even Saul. In other words, Barnabas was not a cynic. And I say that because we live in a time 
when cynicism has been elevated to the place of wisdom. The cynic is the one who never trusts. The cynic is the one who always tears down and never builds up. The cynic has critical things to say, but never kind things to say. He never has hope. He's the bah humbug of every scene. Always seeing the downside, never the possibilities. We don't want to get trapped into that way of thinking because all around us, people think that that way of thinking looks like wisdom. It's not wisdom. Certainly not the wisdom of God. Because at its essence, cynicism is pride. It is saying, since I can't see it, it can't be. And since I didn't think of it, it's not a good idea. But Barnabas didn't go there. He extended his trust. When the word spread that the former persecutor had been converted, many scoffed, many were cynical. But Barnabas said, praise God, one more for the cause of Christ. Barnabas trusted Saul because Barnabas trusted in an all-powerful God. And Barnabas said, nothing is too hard for my God. No soul is too far gone for his spirit to soften. Barnabas trusted that God could transform everyone, even this one who was a persecutor of the church. And in God's transformation power, he could make them new. Later on, This same Saul that he mobilizes, now the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He tells us that in Christ, we are connected to Christ, and that connection makes us positionally new, remade now because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's other things that begin to change as well. And one of those things that I think about is our record begins to change. Let me think about growing up once again. Did you ever have to go to the principal's office? Probably none of you ever experienced that, I imagine. But I experienced that more than a few times. And I remember what the principal would say to me. He always would say, Mark, this is going to go on your permanent record. Now, I never saw that permanent record. I never heard of it again after I left school. And evidently, nothing good ever went on my permanent record. It's only the bad stuff that goes on the permanent record. But I heard about it a lot in school. But here's the the good news. When you're a new creation in Christ, God erases your permanent record. All things are made new. You are... New in character, the Spirit takes residence in you and the process of sanctification begins. It means that my desires begin to change, my interests begin to change. Also, it means I get more and more disgusted with sin in my life. And that's a process that is lifelong. And and that's why, in a sense, I said, you, you know, you never really leave second base. We're always being built up in the Lord. We're always growing, always learning and progressing being made new, but we also have a new assignment, and we have to trust God that He has designed us in a way that we can do the assignment that He has for us. The Apostle Paul had an assignment waiting for him. I read a story of two ladies, elderly ladies, who were riding down, riding in the car down Main Street one day. Mildred was in the passenger seat, and Martha was driving. Mildred was watching the scenery go by, looking at the storefronts as they were driving through town, and all of a sudden, Martha went through a red light. 
And she, Mildred didn't want to say anything. She didn't want to embarrass her or anything. So she didn't speak up. But then, boom, it happened again. She went right through a red light. This time, a car horn was sounding and a guy was yelling at the top of his lungs. Well, once again, Mildred didn't want to say anything. Surely she's embarrassed with people beeping the horn at her and everything else. But then, boom, it happened a third time. And by now, Mildred's starting to fear for her life. So she turns to Martha and said, Martha, you've just gone through three red lights. And Martha said, what? I thought you were driving. (laughs) My point is, somebody had to have their hands on the wheel there. And in fact, we all have to have our hands on the wheel in some fashion, uh, doing that which God has designed us to do for his kingdom. Barnabas was so sure that God's design was resting in Saul that he didn't let him fade into the woodwork. He took the wheel, so to speak, so that Saul could grab hold of his part of the wheel and get involved as well. It's not a sideline sitting kind of uh, attitude in Barnabas. He doesn't go home at the end of the day and complain to his wife about the way everybody else is treating poor Saul but do nothing about it. No, Barnabas got active. He got busy, got involved. And that's what we need to be, involved with, with one another, involved. Maybe there are people that are missing. After the pandemic, there are people that are missing. People maybe you're concerned about. Maybe they're struggling in the faith. We need to take action. We need to call them. We need to write them. We need to pray for them. Span the breach to them. Look around. And maybe there's an area of ministry that you you evaluate as, this is not going as good as it should be going. It's not functioning at its peak performance. That might be a clue that God is nudging you to get involved. Very often, what we call holy discontent is the first nudge of God to say, get involved and and help out there. My most favorite historical story of holy discontent uh, comes from the life of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was born in 1647. Today, we call Isaac Watts the father of English hymnody, the, the writing of hymns. Uh, But that was born out of holy discontent because in the day that he was a boy and going to church, there was no singing of hymns in church. There was no singing of songs at all in church. As a matter of fact, the only thing they used was the psalms. They called it the psalter. And they didn't really sing the psalms. They they had almost kind of a call and response kind of chanting uh, of the psalms that the that the, the preacher would would have with the congregation. And Isaac Watts said, "This is so boring." He complained to his father, "This is so boring. Out in the world, there's songs and singing and this kind of thing." And he had a natural inclination for it. So his father said, "Well, why don't you try to do better?" And at 19, Isaac Watts started writing hymns and introducing them to the church. At first, it was controversial. People didn't know this this is kind of modern or this church is going liberal. What's the the story with these, these hymns? But over the course of his life, Isaac Watts wrote 750 hymns. Fifteen of them are in the hymn book right in front of you. But some of the hymns that he wrote are, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. I sing the mighty power of God. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Joy to the world when I survey the wondrous cross. We're marching to Zion. That's just a few of his hits. 
Now, Isaac was, but it started out of discontent. Let's not resort to the lowest form of church involvement, whereas we sit back and pass judgment on what's going on. If there is an area that you see and you say it should be done better, jump in. Jump in. In the past, I've told you about a conversation I had with a capable woman who came to me with an idea, uh, an aspect of ministry that she thought ought to be taking place. She made an appointment. She came in to, to talk to me about it. I li- listened to her idea, and I really liked it. I thought, this was, a, this was a great idea. And so I turned to her and I said, will you help get this off the ground? And you should have seen the look of horror on her face. She said, oh, no, no, I'm just the idea person. No, no. In other words, others will have to jump in, not me. It doesn't work that way. We all need to jump in in some way. We have a growing and challenging children's ministry, and, and I know we need more volunteers to work there in the preschool and the children's area, and I know we all feel deeply that we want our kids to get the best Christian education they have, knowing the Bible stories, coming to faith in Christ Jesus, and to have fun doing it like they're going to have this afternoon as they watch the movie and the, the incredible afternoon. But it takes people jumping in to, to make that happen. We want the very best discipleship ministry we can have. Our rooted groups or our sermon-based Bible studies, the Sunday Bible classes. But the only way that we can really have that is people who jump in and say, I'll help teach or, or our, our facilitate or, or, or you can uh, open up our home so that you, the group can meet. We want the best outreach to our community that we truly can have to build a bridge over which the gospel can pass. But it, makes, it takes uh, people jumping in so that men and women, boys and girls will come to know Christ. Barnabas jumped in, and he enabled Saul to jump in. And you fast forward over to chapter 11, and we see that this is not the only time that Barnabas jumped in. In chapter 11, verse 22, we'll pick up the reading there, Barnabas is mobilized again. We're stepping into the story, but I'll explain it. It says, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of the Lord, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Part of Barnabas's gift was that he is able to look past imperfections and see possibilities. Because a new thing was happening in the city of Antioch. And the church leaders in Jerusalem wanted an opinion as to whether or not that new church in Antioch was, was valid and things were going well there and it was doing what it should be doing. And they sent Barnabas to make that evaluation because they knew that he could uh, balance things correctly. And when he got there, he saw the grace of God at work in people. These people weren't perfect, and that church wasn't perfect. But that balance is needed, and it's especially needed if we're going to truly be mobilized as disciples of Jesus Christ. Because everyone we'll work alongside of is going to be a human being and not perfect. We all have issues. We all have foibles. We have problems. There are times when we are cranky, times when we're irritable. That happens. But we must be like Barnabas. Even though those things were there, he said, I see God's grace working, and he rejoiced. 
I bring this up because it is a vital thing to remember, especially when we emphasize this whole idea of discovering your divine design. Because the impression might be given to you that if I'm mobilized according to my divine design, then from there on in, everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be rosy. There won't be any problems. And I'll never be unhappy with the, the job that the guy next to me is doing, that kind of thing. That is never the case. Why? Because the battle is real. The enemy is real. And we need a wartime mentality. But the victory is ours. And joy in service is real. I'll describe it this way. It's like in the game of tennis. When you're, when you're playing tennis and you, you hit the ball and it's just right. That usually doesn't happen to me. I'm so, I'm, it's more theoretical than anything else. But I, I know about that. You hit that ball and it makes just the right sound. And it feels just right because you've hit the sweet spot in that tennis racket as you're playing that game. Now, it would be silly for us just because we don't hit the sweet spot every single time to say, well, I'm not going to play anymore because I need the sweet spot every time. Even the best of players don't hit the sweet spot any t every time. It's a process of growing and striving and trying. But as you serve Jesus and you hit that sweet spot, it is a joy. It's unrealistic to think that others will always hit the sweet spot. But it's the person who dares to try, who's willing to play, that's the person who will be victorious. Barnabas was willing to try. He himself was mobilized, and he helped mobilize others. Who helped mobilize others? Because the Apostle Paul mobilized many, but one of them was Timothy. And he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, and he says this, The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. See, that's the process passing it on and mobilizing and mobilizing and mobilizing. But it takes on the reliable men and the reliable women being willing to jump in. I say this because figuratively, some of you may be on the high, uh, high rise, uh, the, the high dive, I should say. You're up there and it looks a little scary. But I'm like my friends were at the edge of the pool. I'm down there saying, jump, 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 because what looks scary will turn into a joy. Following Jesus is not just about waiting around for the promise of heaven. It's about finding purpose now, and as we do, we will be blessed. We will all be blessed. I'm going to close with a quote from uh, a morning devotional that I read every day. This is, the, this is the devotional reading from this past Friday, and this is what Pastor Paul David Tripp writes. He says this, we all give our hearts, and I'm adding, and our efforts, we all give our hearts and our efforts to something. The question is, to whom and to what? We were never hardwired for freedom, if by freedom we mean an independent, self-sufficient life. We were created by God to be connected to something vastly bigger than ourselves. We were carefully built by God to have every aspect of our personhood connected to Him and His plans for us. And when we reject Him, we don't live autonomously. We replace Him with something or someone. So what does grace offer you? 
The answer is the world's most wonderful, heart-satisfying, life-changing, hope-producing servanthood. He, God, is protecting us from seeking hope where hope will never be found. It is really true. His call to obey and serve is the tool of his rescuing grace. I read that Friday morning and I said, this guy gets it. And we all should get that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we discover the way that you have designed us and say yes to serving you in, that, in those fashions, that there is a wellspring of joy and it is an evidence of grace. It won't be perfect, but Lord, it will be pleasing and it will be pleasing to you. We want to do our best to please you. Help us do just that. And as we do it, bless us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.